how many of you are on social media? Like you use it pretty regularly? Uh, how many of you are Facebook users? You got Facebook users in the room. Uh-huh. Okay. How many of you are Instagram users? Instagram users. Okay. Snapchat? Oh, okay. Um, Twitter? Oh, <laughs> nobody's like, no one wants to play over here. Okay, good job. All right. Yeah, social media is weird, isn't it? I mean, you already know all the ills, all the things, everything that goes on with it. It's weird to me because it's like, it's, so many times it's, it's just like this, this fake reality, isn't it? Like, it's so funny because I look at my feed from time to time, and I know the pains that I go through to post the right kinds of things. I know that I'm, I'm putting on the right filter. I know that I'm getting the best shot. I know that I'm, I'm saying to my kids, hey, throw the football again so that it looks like you're really good at it. Like, I mean, I'm trying to create this perfect thing and, and show that to the world. And we all know. You look at everybody's feed, and you go, oh, they have such a great life. But you know it's not true. Like deep down, you got to know it's not true. And if you don't know that, oh my gosh, I got a surprise for you. It's not true. Their lives are just as hard as yours. They just have better filters. But there's this, but there's this gap, right? There's this gap between, between uh, what they show and what we show and what really is happening. Like when's the last time that you got fired from a job and you're like, yo, I just got fired. Hashtag blessed. Not, not, you, do, you, don't, you don't do that, right? You show the good things, not the bad things. This, this is a gap. There's another gap that shows up online that I really love, and it's the Pinterest fail gap. Have you seen these? I love these with all my heart because people are so well-intentioned, and they want to do such a good job, but they fail. Uh, things like this. I got one, um, this, this lovely crayon art piece, and down at the bottom, nailed it. It's really, that's the top is the Pinterest piece, and down here is, the, is what I would do. Uh, shockingly, that is actually my photo. It's uh, uh, or this one right here, the next one, yeah, chocolate-covered kiwi popsicle, yeah, nailed it, yeah, I want to eat that. <laughs> I'm going to have that right after service today, and then I'm going to vomit. Uh, next one, let's see, oh, yeah, the waffle, uh, these cookies, you're down here at the bottom, I don't even know what's going on there. Speaking of vomit, I'm sorry, I should not have said that. Next one, this one is fantastic, uh, this minion cake, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's really good. Good job. Um, and then Cookie Monster Cupcakes. I don't even know, man. It's like, give that to your kid. Cookie Monster Melted! And he's throwing up a cookie. Like, I don't even know what's happening there. That's nightmares to every child ever. It's very, very scary. There's a gap. There's a gap between what we want and what we want to do and what we actually do. There are lots of gaps like this in our world, and I want to talk to you about one of those gaps today. As we continue our series on Isaiah 58, we've been camping out in this passage, Isaiah 58, and it's really 1 through 14. It's been amazing. It's been powerful. It's been so good. I'm not going to take the time to read it this morning again because it is really lengthy, but I want you, would you please just make it a part of your regular reading. Add it in to your other Read Scripture app reading or one-year Bible reading or whatever it is. Keep reading it through over the next several weeks because this is where we're planted and where we want God to speak to us. But what we've been talking about is a simple idea that we tend to reduce the gospel down to what I can get out of it. It's whatever I can receive. It's kind of a, the gospel to us has become kind of a get out of hell card for me. Like I don't have to go to hell anymore. And when I die and go to heaven and that's great. And that's the gospel. That's not true. That's part of the gospel. It's an incredibly important part of the gospel. It's the beginning of it all, but it is not the full gospel. So what we've been saying is over the past few weeks is that the, the, the gospel, the, the, the kingdom of God it's, it's intended for right now to change and to challenge the world that we live in here and now. Like, that's what, that's what it's for. This is what Jesus wants to do. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said in Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 10, he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of God is not something that's for the future. It's not something that's going to happen one day. It's here now. It's happening right here and right now. The kingdom of God is not a way for us to get out of the world, to get out of here. The kingdom of God is the means to redeem the world that we live in today. This is what we're trying to get. This is where we're trying to arrive to as a family. If you make the gospel just about us, just about going to heaven, then you've got to cut out like one-tenth of the scriptures in the Bible. You've got to just cut them out, just get rid of them. And effectively, in the West, it seems like that's what we've done a lot of times. And when you do that to the scriptures, and when you do that to the gospel, it becomes weak and full of holes, and it doesn't really hold together. It's incomplete. So, so that's what we've been trying to get ourselves to believe. And so a couple, of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, I asked you a question. I said, are you really willing to be open to God's will for your life? And then we had a big discussion about that, and I feel like I yelled at you for a long time, but I was yelling at myself too, and so that's just kind of where we've been. <laughs> and today I want to ask you a couple more questions, because if you answered that question, are you, really open to be, are you really open to God's will for your life? If you can answer yes to that question, then there are a couple of follow-up questions. Like, what is God's will for my life? That's a good question. What does God really expect of me? We did ask that question last week. When you stop to think about it, these expectations, uh, these things that God has for us, they're not all that mysterious, right? In fact, they, they're very clearly written in page after page after page of the Bible. God is telling us what they are. And they can be summed up, I believe, in three words. Those words are compassion and mercy and justice. Micah 6.8 will be familiar to many of you. It says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. God's expectations of us, they center around this. His compassion and his mercy for people. His zeal for justice. So whatever, whatever it is, whatever God has for you, whatever his will is for you, we know that it will have something to do with mercy and compassion and justice. That's a given. We all want to know, don't we? We all want to know, what's the will of God for my life? And everybody wants to know the specific will. What's the thing I'm supposed to do? I knew that I was supposed to be a youth pastor for a lot of years. I hope I have more years of being able to rally and encourage the next generation, but, but whatever, that's up to the Lord. I knew that was the case. Right now, I know that the specific will of God for my life is that I'm here with you. Sorry about that. But that's what he's asking me to do. And so here I am, and I love you. So I'm here doing this. But then we all have those specific things that God wants us to do. But we also have like a general will, like things, the general will of God that all of us, we just know we're supposed to do. One of those things is to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's not just for me. That's for all of us. It's a general will of God. We all are supposed to be a part of that. This is the exact same thing. Mercy, compassion, justice. This is the general will of God for us. But once you know that this is what it is, there's like this, this, uh, this gap. <laughs> once you understand it, a gap shows up for us. Uh, in fact, I've got this. Yeah, there's a gap. It's a gap in our lives. It's something where we, we, we know we're supposed to do this, but we can't quite get to this. That gap tends to be between our knowledge or our awareness of meeting somebody's need, the awareness that people around us are in need, and then actually fulfilling or meeting that need. Show us that. So awareness of, of the need around us and families and coworkers and friends and people on the streets, 
And then there's a gap between actually getting to the point of being able to meet that need. And that gap, right there in the middle, it's what we call indifference. It's indifference. I'm indifferent to the situation. Check this out in 1 John 3, 14 through 19. In the message version, it says, the way we know we've been transferred from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters. (laughs) Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. That's a bummer. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. You feeling good? And you know very well that eternal life and murder don't go together. If you didn't know, now you know. This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his love for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but you turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, we're living, truly living in God's reality. I came from a military town, Colorado Springs, Colorado. We had the Air Force base that was right across the church, right across the highway from the church where I was serving. Fort Carson, the big army base there. There's a lot of military people all around. It was in, it was in, it was in Colorado Springs that I, I learned this idea. This idea of the the commander's intent. They call it the CI. So whenever you go to battle, or you, 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 the, the, you know, all the, the military leaders get around the table and they make a strategy and they make a plan and these tanks have to be to this place by this time and the fuel trucks have to be here and we got to get the bridge builders over here because we got to get the tanks and the fuel over to here. we got to get the planes to fly in at the right time. Like there is a plan, a strategy that the army, for the mission the army or whatever military branch is going to uh, run into, right? They're going to make a plan. But the commander has an intent for that plan. The commander's intent is we're going to take that ridge. That's what we're going to do. And so everybody that, that's going to bring the tanks and the fuel trucks and everybody that's going to fly a plane in, everybody's going to build a bridge, they all know the CI. The commander's intent is that we're going to take that ridge. That's the plan. And do you know why that's really, really important? Because this guy, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Helmuth von Moltke? I think it's, I just murdered that German language. I don't know what it is, but we'll just call him Helmuth for short. He said, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. It's a great plan till the first bullet flies, and then it's over. This, tr- this truck breaks down. There's no fuel. This tank can't get to where it needs to go. It's ruined. The plan is ruined. And so these guys could all be running around going, the plan is wrecked. Everything's wrong. We can't get this done. We'll never make it. But they don't do that. You know why? Because they know what the CI is. They know what the commander's intent is. The commander's intent is, we're going to take that ridge. And so if everything gets lost, if everything gets blown up, if there are three soldiers, if there is one soldier left on the ground, he knows my job is to take that ridge. I'm going to do what I can do. Everybody, what we're talking about here is just like that. I like to call it the MI, the master's intent. Our master's intent, the MI, is this right here. Matthew 22, 35 through 38. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? To love God with everything. That is the greatest thing that we can do. Then what's the second greatest commandment? He continues in verse 39. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. 
as yourself. This is the MI. This is the master's intent. When you get lost, what am I supposed to do with my life? I lost my job. I lost, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. When the strategy gets wrecked, you know I've got the MI. I've got the MI. I can love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I can love my neighbor as myself. I know every time that's where I will go back to. This is what we're trying to do. These are the number one and number two purposes in your life, the MI. So let me ask you another question. How you doing? <laughs> oh, man. It was fun up until then. <laughs> How are you doing? How are you doing in fulfilling your purpose in loving God? In fact, this is totally awkward, but I want to ask you to rate yourself. You don't have to do it publicly, but on your message notes, you've got a scale, one to ten. And I want you to rate yourself on how you're doing in loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. You don't have to show anybody. There won't be a test later. None of that will happen, but I want you to do it. And we're going to put it up here because some of you aren't note takers like me. So if you're not, then I just want you to look up here and I just want you to place yourself. How are you really doing on loving God? Go ahead. Pencils down. Okay. (laughs) Let me ask you another question then. How are you doing in fulfilling your purpose in loving your neighbor? How are you doing on that? You've got another section there, another one through 10. Just circle one. Don't think about it too long. Usually it's your first instinct. It's usually the right one. Just circle it. I'm probably this. All right, look again at 1 John 3, 14 through 19. The way we know we've been transferred from death to life is we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know very well that eternal life and murder don't go together. This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his, love, his life for us. And this is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're truly living in God's reality. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's saying that loving God is a subjective test. Your personal opinion, feelings about it. But loving your neighbor is an objective test. It's an objective test. It's outside of just your own personal feelings and what you think. So the score that you gave yourself for loving your neighbor... It's really the score that you give yourself for loving God. I wonder how they matched up for you. I wonder if you were a little lower on one. I know I was. So I think it's really easy for us to deceive ourselves, you know, to walk around in a spiritual bubble, to walk around thinking that we're doing a great job, but we're detached from living in the reality of God. 1 John 3.17 said, If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to his love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. But that means that the opposite also has to be true. Doesn't it? The opposite also has to be true. If we help out a brother or a sister who is in need, if we help somebody out, if we serve them, if we love them, if we take care of them, we make God's love appear. We make God's love known to them. We make God's love known to the world around us. I think for so many of us, there is that gap of indifference between the awareness of somebody's need and actually taking the step to fulfill it. And that indifference, it's just fueled by by our self-centeredness. It's just fueled by that, by just focusing. And I don't mean that like like you're the biggest jerk in the room. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that it's easy for us to focus in and look inward. It's why we've made the gospel what it is. We've just looked inward too much instead of focusing outward. 
Dr. Ralph Wilson in his book, Jesus Walk, said it this way, love, sympathy, and mercy are motivated by the need of another, while withholding mercy is essentially an act of selfishness or self-protection. I think most of us are probably pretty unwilling to admit how selfish we really are. <laughs> uh, I'm not really pumped about standing up here and telling you I'm a selfish man. That's not my favorite thing to do. I talk about this all the time with young couples who are about to get married. And we'll always say that thing to them, you know, and most of you know it. We'll say, hey, God's vision for marriage is not to make you happy. God's vision for marriage is to make you holy. Like, that's what he's doing. Now, people take that real hard line. Personally, I think that God kind of wants you happy in marriage, too. But I think the ultimate goal is, like, you're going to be miserable, but you'll be holy. <laughs> Are you ready to take your vows? Like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I believe in both. <laughs> in my marriage, it's both. Not every day, but it's both. <laughs> Mostly my fault, but it's both, all right? <laughs> Happy and holy, that's what he's doing. But we'll talk to these, these couples about that and tell them, and, and it's amazing how it works, you know? You get married, and you just, you instantly, let, you find out how selfish you really are. Like, you, the, like day one, like, you, you wake up and like, all right, ooh, I'm going to go and uh, I'm going to get a bowl of cereal, and I'm going to do my exercise routine, and she's like, but I, but I had plans for this morning. I was going to make up some eggs, I was going to... Uh, that's, not, that's not what I do. Like, that's not my routine. That's not my schedule. That's not what I do. Or later on in the evening, you know, you want to kick back and watch Netflix for four hours, and, and, and she's like, Don't, hey, let's go for a walk. Babe, I, I got a thing. Like, like, it's on the calendar. I mean, it's like Netflix, four hours. Like, binge on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Like, that's what I do with my life. You know what I mean? Like, it just happens. And you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I really am selfish. I just want my way. Now, some of you are single, and I, I, I understand that. This is why it's really important for you to have friends. <laughs> this is why it's really important for you to be around people, to be around people that can sharpen you and help you and take off some of these rough edges. It's really important for you to be in community. But something happens when you get married that it's just, poof, it's right there. Oh, man. And so what you do is you deal with it, and you go, I, I think I got it. I got it figured out. I'm pretty caring. I'm pretty loving. I'm pretty unselfish. I've kind of emptied myself. I've laid myself down for her. I'm ready to give it all. I, I surrender my life to you. It's going to be great. And then you have a kid. <laughs> and now you're selfish again. Like all of a sudden, you're selfish. Like in the middle of the night, somebody's crying, and you're like, oh, you do it. I'm so tired. I have to work. What do you do? You stay home all day with the kid. You don't do nothing, right? Don't ever say that, by the way. You, I mean... Talk about not being happy in marriage. Like, that just, that's it right there. Don't be an idiot. But, but, but that's what happens because you're selfish. And so, you, so, so, so then you work it out again. Okay, babe, let me get up and I'll take care of this one this, this time. Three o'clock in the morning, I'll do it. Oh, and you kind of get that selfishness out of you. And you're like, I'm a pretty good man. I got a wife. I got a kid. I'm doing great. And then you have two kids. And suddenly you can no longer just take care of that one kid. Like, like she can take it sometimes and you can be free. But then you've got one each. Now what do you do? And so you realize, I'm selfish again. And it just happens over and over and over again. And you just find out repeatedly how selfish you really are. Have you experienced this? I just want you to see, like, th this is how we live, most of us. Luke chapter 10, Jesus describes this in Luke chapter 10, 29 through 37. He's talking about the, the Good Samaritan. He says, the man wanted to justify his actions. So Jesus asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A, a Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over, looked at the man lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. 
Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Notice that word, mercy. This word in the original Greek language is elios. It means the emotion roused by contact with an affliction which comes undeservedly on somebody else. Think about it. It's only when we intentionally put ourselves around people who are suffering, who are poor, who are down and out, who are marginalized, who are afflicted, only when we're around people that are hurting that mercy actually starts to come out of us. That's the only way. The Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to make sure you are solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourselves regular checkups. You need firsthand evidence, not mere hearsay, that Jesus Christ is in you. Test it out. We're supposed to test ourselves to see if this reality of Jesus is actually working in us. And this test can only be done in relationships. That's it. How else can you test to see if you're patient unless you're really bugged by somebody else's really annoying habits? I have a condition. I have a condition. It's called misophonia. Are you familiar with this condition? Some people try to tell me that it's fake, but I believe the scientists that say, the one scientist who said it's true. It's called misophonia. It means when I hear somebody chewing food, I get really angry. Like it just happened. Like you just can't, you can't control it. You feel me? You got misophonia. Yeah, see? That's obviously it's real. There's two people in the room that have it. How many of you have it? You hear chewing? You hear chewing? And you, it's, it's the weirdest thing because you, can, like you can't control it. Like you're just mad. Like, oh, like you just want to punch somebody because of the chewing, the smacking, the clicking, the, that, that sound. It's the worst thing in the world. And even the people that you love the most, like my wife, she's the most gorgeous, wonderful person that I've ever met or known in my life. It took me about a year and a half of marriage for it to actually wear down, but it did wear down. I'm like, could you just chew quieter? She's like, I'm not doing anything. And she's not. She's got her mouth closed. She's beautiful. You're lovely inside and out. But, but I'm just so angry. If you're not around people that are smacking in your ear or chewing or grapes, eating grapes, oh, I can't handle it. The point is, unless you're around people that are doing that to you, you can't know that you have patience. You didn't test it out to find out if Jesus is really in you, if the love of Christ is actually in you. You can't know it. How else can you find out if you're good or a kind person unless you're dealing with difficult people? I have road rage issues. So do you. I do. I do. I'm a, get out of the left line. I don't care if it's Texas and we're all nice and loving and say, howdy, partner. I don't care. Get out of my way. Why? Why, how, why are you not going the speed limit? You're going 10 miles under the speed limit. Why would you do that? Whew. Thank you for this therapy session. I just need to get it. I just need to get it out. I'm just, in fact, I'm just going to. So then, it really started with my mother. <laughs> Sorry, that was highly inappropriate. <laughs> How else can you test to see if God's mercy is inside of you unless you're actually, actually, actually in relationship with other people? Did you really think it was your dog or your cat that mattered the most to God? 
but I love little mittens so much, and I take good care of her. It's nice. We should take care of animals. But isn't taking care of the barista who never gets your name right, isn't that better? Isn't being around that coworker that's so frustrating and so just talks your ear off all day while you're trying to work, isn't that better? Isn't it more important to show kindness and mercy to them? Isn't it better to just share something with somebody on the street corner? I know you've got all kinds of concerns and issues about that, but, but just, to, just to give some food and say, hey man, God bless you, Jesus loves you. Like, isn't that better? We know from the gospel that we gain righteousness through relationship with Jesus. That's how it happens. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so nobody can boast. I didn't do it. It's amazing. Our righteousness, our right standing with God, it only comes through Jesus. But though our right standing with God only comes through Jesus, our righteousness is unproven until it's refined, until it's demonstrated in the midst of relationships with other people. Guys, this is why Supper for Six is so important to us. This is why this is such a big deal. This is why we want you to get together and, and some of you to lead a group uh, this, over this next week to sign up and lead one because we need to be in relationship with one another because of this. So what it means is there's no way to verify the work of God's grace in us independent of other people. You can't tell me it. You can't convince me of it. You have to show it. There's no way to demonstrate godliness. There's no way to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. There's no way to demonstrate His work in you without the interaction of people. Remember, mercy, it's the emotion roused by contact with an affliction which comes undeservedly on somebody else. You see what it means? It's only when you have contact with somebody that has a need that this God-given emotion of mercy can actually come out of you. It's one thing to see what happened in London it's one thing to see what just went on yesterday and to see the three attacks. And it, and it kind of rises up in us. Oh, it's a shame. Oh, I'm going to pray for them. Oh, I'm going to change my Facebook profile picture. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's another thing, though, to say, I'm going to get a plane ticket. I'm going to fly over there. I'm going to be around. I'm going to walk the streets. I'm going to pray for people. I'm going to lay my hands on people. I'm just going to see what I could do. When you are face-to-face with somebody like that, that's a way different story. Something else comes out of you. It's one thing to get a compassion kid and sponsor a compassion kid, and we all should do that. That's an incredible thing to do. It's another thing when you're sitting there in a village on the other side of the world looking that kid in the face. Something else happens in those moments. And this is the point that we all have to get to. This is the point that Jesus is calling us to. Mercy only comes out of you when you meet with somebody who has a need. So everybody, this is what we got to do, man. The time for playing church is over. The time for just showing up and sitting on a seat on Sunday is over. The time for just making the gospel of Jesus about me, it's over. The time for indifference to this whole thing is over. The time for selfishness is over. I want to encourage you, find ways to connect with people who have needs. We're going to help you over the course of the next coming weeks. We're going to give you some opportunities, but, but let it rise up within you. We don't want to just do a big program at the end of this series. We just want God to transform us on the inside so that we just start becoming this message rather than having a serve day on a Saturday. Amen. Find ways to connect with people who have needs. Walk slowly through the crowd. 
This is something that we do. Uh, we, we, team one, we always talk about this. This is what we do on a Sunday morning. I'm not always good at it. I confess it to you. I'm trying my best, but sometimes I'm like, I got to get this done and this thing's not going to happen. But, but that's not the heart of this church. The heart of this church is walk slowly through the crowd. Notice people. Look them in the eye. See what's going on. Stop to ask the question, not just, hey man, how you doing? Good. <laughs> but stop to ask the question, hey, how are you doing? I'm going to stay planted right here. I'm going to look you in the face. I'm not going to look at the movie poster over your shoulder. I'm going to look at you in the face. I want to hear what you got to say. How are you doing? I thought I was supposed to say fine. Nope, 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 nope. That, that's the rules out there. That's the rules outside uh, of these walls. The rules inside these walls are how you doing means, you know, I'm not doing that good. I could use some prayer about this. Those are our rules. And what happens when we learn those rules here, we take those rules out there. And you're not just walking slowly through the crowd on Sunday morning, but you're walking slowly through the crowd in your workplace. You're walking slowly through the crowd on the job. You're even walking slowly through the crowd in the mall. You're walking slowly through the crowd on 6th Street. Then you walk a little faster. Then you walk, <laughs> then you, then you walk a little slower again. <laughs> oh, you've been there. Um, and then just, man, look for ways to help people. Just look, look for ways. Look for ways to help them. Look for ways to... to, to to open up some possibilities for somebody. Look for ways to be a blessing to somebody. Just keep your eyes open. Uh, the point of this whole thing, these past three or four weeks has been this. Just keep your eyes open. I want you guys to come on back up. We're going we're gonna to end here. If you would, I, I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. We're going to prepare to take communion here in just a moment, but would you just kind of quiet your heart and your mind? Would you just let the Holy Spirit speak to you here really quick? The only reason that we can even talk about this today the only reason that we can do any of this is because Jesus, he first showed us the mercy. He showed us mercy. He started it all. He began it. He came into contact with us in our affliction. He met us when we were a mess. And he came near in the form of a little baby. And he entered into our world and wrapped himself in human flesh. He came near to us and he showed us mercy. And, and, and even more than that, he gave us his grace so that we can be forgiven and set free. I just wonder if you close your eyes for a moment. And I just want to ask you to make the determination in your heart. Maybe you've been missing that. Maybe you've missed Maybe you've missed it. Maybe you've missed the mercy that's been shown you. Maybe you've missed the truth of the gospel. I don't know, whatever it is. Maybe you've not even really heard about all of this, but you're like, man, this is, sounds pretty great. I think I want to be a, a part of this thing. I want to know this Jesus who died on a cross for me and he rose again. He paid the sacrifice for all of my sin. That's great. I don't think I want to pay that price if I don't have to. 
He did all that so that you could be restored to a right relationship with God the Father. And this is the opportunity that all of us have. That all of us have. He came to give us his mercy when we were a mess. So today, right now, in this moment, in your heart, just you and him, if that's you and you need to make a decision, you want to make a decision to say, yeah, I want to follow you. You want to make a decision to say, yeah, I followed you before, but I'm going to follow you again. I'm sorry, I've wandered, I've drifted a little bit, but I'm ready now to come back. Would you just in your heart just say, Jesus, I receive you. I'm sorry, forgive me for my sin. Wash me clean. I believe in you. I believe in your cross. I believe you died and rose again. I believe you paid for my sin so I don't have to. So now would you forgive me? Would you be the Lord of my life? Would you be the Savior of my soul? Would you teach me to live like the weird guy on stage is talking about? Thank you for rescuing me. Start me on a new path of showing mercy to others.